You know, the forests, like the Douglas fir forests, live to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. And yet I think what they call the accumulation of mean annual increment, where, where a forest, where a tree starts growing rapidly, and then it begins to plateau. And so the growth begins to table. Um, and that, a lot of times that occurs around 75 or 80 years, even at a relatively young age, that tree becomes mature. Um, and yet, and then and it's a completely different thing from carbon. I think that Bev is pointing out that these trees continue to grow over time in their capacity to store carbon. So, you know, how fast the tree is growing and how much carbon it sequesters are really two different questions. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Now, today's episode was a very cool one. I definitely learned a bunch. I am out of my comfort zone 100% in this one because uh, although forest values and forest management is something that I understand, I have literally no context for it for the United States, and that's all we talked about. (laughs) So... This was probably the most I've ever prepared for a recording and also the least prepared I've ever been. (laughs) So, but it was good. It was really, really good. Everyone on here gave me a big hand and kind of pulled the conversation along to make sure that what I was asking made sense and that we could get something productive out of this conversation. It was really, really good. A big thank you to everyone involved. Uh, So today's episode is all about forest carbon and managing forests for forest carbon solutions and uh, as such we needed to provide some context for myself and for other folks around the whole picture of u.s forests and u.s forest management so uh we brought on a few people now this all started when the sierra club reached out to me uh wanting to talk about managing forests for carbon storage and maybe conserving more mature and old growth forests in the name of carbon sequestration and biodiversity and so uh i told them that sounds awesome let's do this but i need more context because i don't know what's going on so they brought in uh dr bev law and jim furnish so uh before we get to meet bev and jim uh i want to introduce you to alex craven who was one of the people responsible at sierra club for setting this all up uh he is a senior campaign representative for Sierra Club, uh, I wanted to say thank you to them again for, for helping me all out with this. And now, Dr. Bev Law, she is uh, Emeritus Professor of Global Change Biology and Terrestrial Systems Science at Oregon State University. She's done a bunch of research around how the forest actually captures carbon, right? So she made a lot of discoveries around the difference between a forest fire versus forest harvesting and how that carbon is used up in the whole picture um what kind of forests store more right is it young forest because they got lots of growing to do or is it old forest because they're established and they're big and they're sucking up a lot of resources right um so we talk a lot about that and then uh with all that research context we brought in jim furnish now jim furnish uh was at one point 
the deputy chief of the Forest Service from 99 to 2002. He spent 34 years with the Forest Service. Uh, he then went on to do a bunch of other stuff. He is an author of Toward a Natural Forest, The Forest Service in Transition, um, a book that I'm definitely going to check out for sure. Uh, he was also w- one of his biggest accomplishments that he says is uh, being a big part of creating both the roadless area conservation rule and the revised national forest planning rule. So he's a really great person to have on here to provide that. What does forest management look like in the States? So it was great to have him on as well with both of these people and Sierra club at the helm. We managed to have a great conversation about managing forests for carbon uh, and, and kind of the, maybe the shift, maybe some kind of shift that needs to happen in the way we think about forest management. It was a very cool conversation, really enjoyed it. Thank you to everybody involved. I uh, really had a great time, most especially to Sierra Club for setting this all up. Sponsors. The number one sponsor for your forest for 2022 is West Fraser. They've been great. They've allowed me to do this the way I want to do it. And uh, they just give me money and say, do your thing. And I, I it's, you can't have a better partner than that, right? <laughs> so thank you, West Fraser. It's been great. And uh, Greenlink Forestry is also a major sponsor. Without them, this would not be possible. Been with me since the beginning. Thank you, Greenlink. And uh, Damaged Timber is another. Go to damagedtimber.com, put in your Forest 10 at checkout to get 10% off anything you purchase. They put Damaged Timber in your home. And finally, a new partner is Forest Proud. They are a nonprofit promoting forest climate solutions. They want to keep forests as forests, and I can't thank them enough for their partnership, for their help. It's been really, really cool getting to understand uh, what they get up to and, and, and talking to them. So thank you a lot, Forest Proud. And without any further messing around, let's dive into this conversation. Here we go. Awesome. So first of all, thanks a lot, everyone, for coming on. I'm really excited about this. And uh, to get started, like I said, we're going to introduce everybody a little bit. And uh, Alex, I want to get you to start because uh, you, uh, Sierra Club, was the one who kind of initiated this this whole thing. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about uh, you know, your role in Sierra Club and how carbon came onto your plate and, and what what we're here to do today. What do you, what do you, what kind of do you hope to accomplish today in this conversation? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. My name is Alex Craven, um, campaign representative with Sierra Club, focused on forests and based out of the Northwest in Seattle, Washington, Coast Salish and Duwamish territory. I think the, um, you know, piece to highlight up front is Sierra Club's a longtime activist organization focused on conservation of our places. And so, over the 125 plus years that the organization's been in existence, there's been moments where we've pivoted and the focus has changed. And I think, you know, mapping out how we've worked for the conservation of wild places, national parks, national forests, and then over time, as the threats of climate change have become more apparent, these aren't just places where we go for you know, restoration or to preserve habitat, though they're still those. It's also places that are uh, performing immense functions in offsetting the worst effects of climate change through carbon storage and sequestration. And nowhere is that more true than mature and old growth forests. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate that. Uh, Bev, do you want to go next? Um, I, I just kind of want to just give a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an introduction of, of who you are, um, 
why why you're here specifically and 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 yeah and the conversation that you hope to have here today Oh, well, I'm a, an emeritus professor at Oregon State University, and I have over 30 years of experience doing research on the forest carbon cycle and forest atmosphere interaction, and then the effects of disturbance and management on forest carbon processes as, water, as well as water processes. So um, I guess I'm interested in this because the, some of the research we've done is um, – pretty applied, just testing ideas that have been put out there and uh, quantifying the the effects and then hopefully providing some options for where we can go and at least have some science-based decision-making going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Bev. Appreciate that. And uh, finally, Jim, what's your deal, man? What, do we, uh, what are you here to talk about today? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'd start with my uh, my background with the United States Forest Service. I graduated from forestry school back in 1968 and began my career with the U.S. Forest Service, worked for about 35 years, um, went through a fairly traditional career, started most of that as a field forester, got involved in a variety of activities that the Forest Service does, including timber management. Um, I, uh, I worked my way into planning, land use planning, strategic work, uh, before becoming a district ranger on the Bighorn National Forest in northern Wyoming, uh, subsequently became a forest supervisor on the Oregon coast in the temperate rainforests, and then eventually, uh, and somewhat unusually, became deputy chief of the organization in 1999. That step from forest supervisor to deputy chief, in my reckoning, has never occurred in the history of the U.S. Forest Service. And so it was somewhat um, uh, controversial, questionable, uh, a bit troublesome for me. I, I really wondered if that would work. And when the chief of the Forest Service, Mike Dombeck, asked me to assume the position of the deputy chief, I, I said, you know, Mike, you're, you're putting you and me and, and the agency in a, a tough spot. I, I'm willing to give it a try, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a risky move. Um, but nevertheless, I was there for about two and a half years before I retired in 2002 um, and very interested, very interested in uh, forest policy issues and uh, particularly how, how is the, um, the great asset of national forests uh, going to be used uh, by the government and, and so on in, in terms of trying to combat climate change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why we're here today, right? We're talking about how can we manage forests to help combat climate change? How can we change the way we do things to try to give ourselves some more, some more space, right? Try to help ourselves out as much as possible when it comes to carbon sequestration and that sort of thing. So, um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, that's the type of stuff that I love is this whole, how do we make forest management as sustainable as possible, right? How do we include as many values as possible, um, as co-values on the landscape to timber and not just as something, you know, we try to avoid wrecking kind of thing, right? Um, that's that's the stuff that I like. And so I'm excited to talk to all of you today about about this, right? How do we start to accomplish this? But first, I think uh, we need, or I need, being a Canadian uh, in an American conversation, uh, I need context. So Jim, if uh, you want to kind of try and paint a picture for us of 
the forests and forest management in the United States, you know, uh, how much of it is public versus private, protected, how much of it is is managed for timber, how much of it is however you want to do it. I'm not sure, but try and paint a picture in the, in the, yeah. in the listener's eyes for uh, how they can picture this forest and, and what we're dealing with. Well, I, I'd start out by saying that, um, you know, when you go to some parts of the world, you see very little in the way of wood as part of construction. You see a lot of stone and concrete and that type of thing. And yet the abundance of forests in the United States has always driven much of the commercial and residential uh, construction. Um, and, you know, I mean, even before the United States uh, was the United States, there was a lot of active logging beginning back in New England. It swept across the country uh, through the lake states in the south, off into the Rockies, and eventually through the Pacific Northwest and, and bumped into the Pacific Ocean and had nowhere else to go. M- much of that would be characterized as cut and run or log the crap out of the Forest Service and then leave. Um, yeah. This, in, in large measure, uh, helped spawn the conservation movement, uh, largely through historic figures like John Muir, uh, one of the creators of the Sierra Club, and, and also Teddy Roosevelt, a very notable figure and a, and a real champion of environmental values. Um, it was thus that the uh, conservation movement was formed in the late 1800s, and they began to look at the vast federal estate, particularly in the Western United States, as um, uh, basically a, a, a war chest, if you want to think about that, of, of creating public lands. Um, the national forests were created um, late in the late 1800s, and the Forest Service was begun in 1905, followed by the Park Service in 1914. Um, I would characterize the history of the Forest Service in three eras. Uh, the first era from its inception until World War II as a custodial era, where not a great deal uh, happened in the way of land management uh, relative to today. Uh, forest firefighting, obviously, but mostly it was trying to get things like rangeland grazing and uh horrible logging activities occurring on the public estate under control. And they and they had some fairly notable success in doing that. World War II changed everything and entered what I call the utilitarian era, where the, the great estate of national forest, which are about 10% of the whole United States, were put to work on behalf of the American economy. And this is when we started to see the huge logging boom. Um, we entered then, um, probably I would use the spotted owl crisis in the Pacific Northwest uh, around the early 1990s as a hinge point, an era of ecosystem management where the Forest Service has strived without a great deal of success, I would add, Matt, to achieve this more holistic, multiple value approach uh, of ecosystem management of all the assets of a forest estate rather than focusing particularly on timber reserves. Um, so those three eras, custodial, utilitarian, ecosystem management, um, I would say would bring us to the present day. And I'm not entirely sure what the future holds, except I think the discussion we're having today about climate change and the role of forests, public lands in that controversy and debate are uh, are are on the table. 
um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and widely discussed, and there are widely varying opinions about what role the National Forest should play in that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that, Jim. That was really good. Yeah, I, I kind of needed that. Uh, and it doesn't sound, honestly, all that different from Canada in that it was kind of, uh, we showed, like, you know, colonization happened people were here and they were kind of like hey there's lots of wood let's just let's just get it right let's go get it it's fine there's tons and then as time went on we started getting inventories started to realize uh the impact it's having and you start to maybe dial back a little bit and and now we're at the time where uh everything's out there and on the table everyone knows what's going on in the landscape and and there's no more there's no more hiding what's going on and you gotta everything's got to be out front so it's got to be above board from everybody's perspective, right? And yeah. so, yeah, we're, uh, so. There are, I, I, I could, I might mention there are a couple notable distinctions between Canada and the U.S. Uh, the first I've noticed population. Um, yeah. and secondly, <laughs> what, what is the, what is the public forest estate? Because I know that the crown forests in British Columbia alone exceed the entire U.S. national forest system. Um, so you have a lot more forest and a lot fewer people. Um, yes, that means that import, excuse me, exports play a huge role in Canadian uh, forest economic policy. Uh, the United States, I think, for a long time was relatively self-sufficient in terms of its uh, wood and forest resources. But I mean, even in my lifetime, I've witnessed uh, the explosion of a global market in, in mm-hmm. wood resources that's really transformed everything. Um, and so the U.S. is obviously uses a lot of wood. They import a lot of wood. They export a lot of wood. Very different from Canada. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And I guess that's the context I'm looking for, right? In that forestry in Canada, or at least in my perspective, from the Alberta perspective, um, is that we're, we're still only harvesting primary forests, right? Like that's still where we're at. There's places where they they might be going into, you know to second pass, but not very many. It's very few and far between and it's for specific reasons. So we've been lucky. We're very fortunate in Canada that we have so much forest and we have the opportunity to, you know, our rotation ages are long, right? So our rotation is, you know, it's very long, right? It's not a 50 year rotation or whatever. I don't even know what it is down there depending on the species, I suppose. But um, like we're talking a a standard rotation for, for conifer is a hundred years, right? Um, and, and even, even deciduous like, uh, Aspen would be 80 years still. So it's, whereas it sounds to me like in the States, it's a little more, uh, well, obviously with a lot more private and that kind of thing. So can you, can you put some, a little bit of perspective, a little bit more perspective on, yeah, public versus private in the States. So how much, and I know I'm, I, I think for me, when I think private forest, I think plantation and I've realized recently that that's not necessarily the case. So, um, if you can contextualize that, like how much, maybe we'll do it that way. How much plantation versus how much, uh, you know, forest, as I would say from, you know, a biodiversity standpoint and that kind of thing. Oh gosh. Um, I mean, I, will say on that? My, <laughs> I mean, my view is that the private industrial forests of the United States, which are actually prodigious. I mean, there's a lot of private industrial national forest, but the bulk of forest in the United States is held by small private landowners. Um, mm. And then you have this whole federal estate of the National Forests Bureau of Land Management Lands, National Parks, uh, which are managed very differently. I, I mean, to try to put it simply, I would say that the private industrial forests are driven 
largely, although there are some exceptions, by economic pressures. And even those sure. have been changing with some of these, what they call the, the rights, the R-E-I, the R-I-E-T, the re, what is it, Alex? I mean, uh, what is that acronym? It's the, uh, reinvestment for taxes. I mean, it's, it's really changed a lot of the nature of some of the private industrial holdings from producing timber to just producing income. Um, oh. the, uh, the public lands have, uh, have always strived to have more of a, environmental footprint um, mm. in that they have they have always espoused things like replanting uh, sustainable logging but it was it was very true that there was a lot of pressure to produce timber for a good four decades on the national forest up until about 1992 and then things have uh, have softened but we still see this now this kind of conundrum we're in with the emergence of forest fires as a huge vector uh, management vector, climate change, droughts, the loss of old growth and mature forests, carbon sequestration, all these other things like water, wildlife habitat, um, recreation opportunities. The, mm. the bind, the bind just seems to be getting tighter and tighter. You said something there that kind of caught my, I didn't, I wasn't going to ask another one of you just yet. I was going to wait, but you said something about things like replanting. Um, is reforestation was reforestation not the norm? Because, like, I mean, in at least in Canada, that's that's a given, right? Like, if you're unless well, you're on private land, then you can do what you want with it, right? But there's not a lot of that here, mostly public. And for us, it's like you have you can only, first of all, you can only cut what's being grown. You can't cut more than that, and you have to replant. Like, those are the two yeah. foundations of sustainable yield logging, right? So, is that not true for the states? Well, I would say that was definitely not the case, uh, probably up okay. until the 1930s. Uh, oh, I very, see. Okay, okay. Very fascinating book called Money Trees that really tracked the um, the the emergence of Douglas fir forestry in the Pacific Northwest and the role of private industry, the role of the uh, Society of American Foresters, which was created by Gifford Pinchot, among others, and uh, the emergence of tree farms and the requirements for planting and that kind of thing. But I would say up until then, planting was basically optional. And I think... Oh, this... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, the uh, same is true for Canada. Same is true for Canada. It's not like we've been doing this perfect from the beginning. It's only been the last, you know, four decades or so that we've been doing stuff like that. But yeah, yeah sorry. But even even within, even within the role of, you know, replanting uh, mm. forested areas or burnt areas and that kind of thing... There are ways to do it that are really more holistic um, and oh, environmentally sure. conscientious uh, versus just replanting, particularly for money and economic drivers. And I would for say sure. most of what I see on private industrial lands, all the all the replanting that is legally required is, is primarily for economic purposes. And, gotcha. uh, and I think the Forest Service, among others, has begun uh, planting a lot more with the idea of biodiversity in mind, uh, as opposed to, you know, simply planning for money trees. Right. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. So I, I, I want to jump now, um, kind of got a better idea for what's going on. Sure. Uh, I want to jump now to, uh, uh, to Bev. Um, I want to start with maybe just getting you to talk about 
this issue of carbon and obviously the big the big study that you've been doing for the last while and all the media you've been doing around it um kind of what its findings are uh measuring you know the carbon output of forests and that kind of thing so uh i, I kind of want to just leave the floor open to you bev and let you just kind of start because I, I i'm sure you've done this a million times at this point and you know the best way to go about it so i'll just let you tell your story around this study because it's definitely um it definitely changed my perspective uh and maybe had me thinking a little more cautiously when it comes to, you know, how we do things. So, uh, yeah, I'll just let you have the floor. Sure. Um, yeah, a lot of my research has been from uh, site level um, to whole regions and from using inventories and satellite data to Earth system modeling. And what we've always been trying to do has been, you know, like I said, I've been doing carbon cycle research for over 30 years and, and, uh, I was primarily a researcher and we're looking at trying to figure out what was the role of forests in the carbon cycle and the global carbon cycle. And so, and then also how does it respond? How does carbon change in forest with different activities, uh, as well as with climate? And so, I mean, one of the, there's a lot that goes into this, um, but. I know (laughs) it's a big problem. It's like, where do you start? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's the idea, right? We're trying to understand what is the carbon cycle because we we want to manage forests for the most carbon, like as one of the values is carbon, right? We would like to capture carbon as much as possible and store it and keep it for, to try and, uh, and fight climate change. And that's one of those things. So we're just yeah. trying to put some context onto it. <laughs> sure. You know, and it, and it starts with recognizing that forests take up a lot of carbon from the atmosphere and they release it through their natural processes. And then, um, and then, so when we look at forest carbon and its value, we're looking at the stocks first, you know, it takes a long time for those stocks to accumulate just like in a bank account. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you just, uh, you want to keep adding to that every year and that that accumulation and these forests have been um, globally they've been taking up about 31 percent of uh, the equivalent of our emissions annual emissions for the past 60 years that's a lot yeah uh, and the oceans yeah. make up a lot of the rest of it so so they've been doing that, but when we get down to the scale of how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, and now that we've squandered about 40 years, it's, it's getting really desperate. Um, we need to take some really big actions that we could have taken a long time ago. Um, so, so what we looked at was, um, for biodiversity, it's an international, um, agreement amongst a lot of countries that they will, try to conserve more land and how much land did they need to conserve was at least let's make targets 30 percent by 2030 and then uh, of course there's been a lot of work done that suggests uh, we've already appropriated most of the net primary productivity in the world we really need to give back some so that we get up to about half earth half protected so when you start looking at okay if you do try and work out these targets where where do you do this? How do you prioritize it? Um, so we used satellite inventory and, and modeling um, to first map the forest carbon stocks and then to map biodiversity metrics. In this case, it's it was uh, species richness, the variety of species that are in those areas. 
And then we did a, a comparison. We said, if you were to protect for uh, just carbon, uh, what areas are the highest priority? Those are the forests that have the highest carbon densities. And we did it by ecoregion because ecoregions are a way that's, it's, uh, it's been tested and verified as a really good way to determine where to conserve nature. So we applied that, um, and just, and, uh, you know, it allowed this priority ranking to occur and it showed us where carbon was highest and it showed us where species richness was highest. And this is amongst all thousands, but um, it's a lot of species. And, and what happened was we saw that where we had high carbon density, we also had generally had high biodiversity. They go together in the Western U.S. Sure. Um, and, and globally, people have have seen and said the same kind of thing. So we mapped those areas. Um, we first did a study over Oregon as the test region because we had so much data here in Oregon. And then we applied it to the rest of the Western U.S. We also modeled future carbon um, accumulation under future climate conditions. And so this, this this is the Earth system modeling. It also has a fire model in it, and, and it has causes and probabilities of fire. And we've mapped where forests are the most vulnerable through the year 2050 or 2100. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we've gone with it. And we're going you know, back down to scales of working in other areas now that states have become interested in seeing this and how it might play out. And, and as when I was in, um, actually helped Forest Service develop the Forest Health Monitoring Program back in the 80s, and uh, we had a lot of indicators. Some of them were structural diversity, you know, soil carbon, uh, a lot of other things like that. Um, and they didn't all get in there. And I always wished that the Forest Service had implemented all of them. Some of them got in there, but not all of them, because we'd be in a lot better shape in, in deciding uh, or just knowing what we have out there. Um, yeah. Satellite data is helping with us a lot now where you, if you have high resolution satellite data. So, so it's this kind of thing where we're, we're data rich in places and data poor in others. And, um, really to be able to carry out some of these protections, we're going to have to do, take a closer look. So we pointed out areas like, Hey, look here. And then from there, states can go down and bring in more information that they might have that we don't have. And, um, such as endemism, that one's really hard to do without a supercomputer to map that even over the state of Oregon at 30 meter resolution. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so I, yeah, I, I, wanted, I wanted to, to, sorry, yeah, I wanted to hear about the um, the specifics that you found about uh, the carbon output for for young versus young forests versus old forests. Yeah, right? so that's that's something that's kind of a it's kind of something people are always talking about, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, so we do, I'll give you two different lines of evidence. And one is that we do these Ameriflex and Canada does this too. There was a FlexNet Canada and, and then we brought it back into the Ameriflex network. I was ahead of the network from North America. We measure carbon dioxide exchange between forests and the atmosphere and other vegetation types. And that gives us the net amount of carbon the whole ecosystem takes up over time. So you can break it out by month or year. And now a lot of our sites have been running 20 years. Well, we saw that amongst sites in Canada and the U.S., um, after disturbance from fire or harvest, it took 10 to 20 years 
for the forest to become a net carbon sink again. That means they were a source for that long, 10 to 20 years. So when you look at it from that perspective, 10 to 20 years of putting out more than they're taking in, uh, that's Mm -hmm. not good. Um, We also measured on a lot of these sites the carbon stocks and the net primary productivity. And then we have inventory data that we used, and we saw how this broke out by age. And, of course, the old forests store a lot more. And it varies, but they store a lot more than young forests do. Um, and, and an example was ponderosa pine, old-growth ponderosa pine stores 20 times the amount of wood that young ponderosa pine stores. So this is a 20-year-old ponderosa pine forest. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, we've done that kind of analysis and we break it out between young, mature, and old. And you can just see it by the curves when you just plot biomass by age or mm-hmm. you plot annual carbon uptake by age. So, mm-hmm. so the thing is with the stocks is the stock is something that can be stay there for hundreds of years if you just let it. And then you're adding to it annually. And so that's that's what matters and it's uh it needs to be part of the accounting the other thing i do is forest carbon accounting right so yeah so 10 to 20 years post harvest or sorry post disturbance i'll say um those young forests are a source right, right. and the, all the old forests continue to be a sink and so how do we how do we start to compare these two um i mean like we're talking about the life cycle of a forest mm-hmm. right so um not really the stand level but of the forest so um like an old forest uh, we know at some point something's going to happen. I mean, maybe not the Pacific Northwest. It's a different kind of story, right? You've got thousand-year-old ecosystems or thousand-year-old trees yeah. on whatever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> getting getting word soup here. But um, how do we how do we start to? I'm trying to find a way to picture this relationship of carbon in the forest, and and how do we start to suss out the best way to manage and and from my perspective, resource extraction is something that's going to happen. Unless you're going to go Thanos on the world and kill half the population, we need raw material. And it may as well be raw material that we can, that is sustainable, right? In some way. And I know there's, there's arguments about how sustainable, but we want to make this as sustainable as possible raw material. So how do we start to understand this concept so that we can start to walk into this and, and, and maybe start to do some of this different management. How could people picture this so that it makes sense in their minds and, and how do we promote more carbon storage over time? Okay. So first, not all forests are just solely for logging. Right. Okay. So Absolutely. when we did our analysis, about 64% of the lands that we identified as being high priority for protection were on federal lands. 25% on private lands and then sure. less on state and uh, indigenous people's lands. So uh, when we talk about preserving areas, those are the, that priority would be on federal lands. And it's, we're not talking about all forests one way or the other, not all mm-hmm. forests cutting and not all forests protected. There mm-hmm. will be industrial forests. But when you, when we've looked at and others have looked at what happens with biodiversity, um, mm-hmm. over time and in relation to carbon, it doesn't really, they don't really start correlating with one another until the stands in, in Oregon anyway are up about, um, 100 years old. Okay. So that gives you an idea of 
you know, you should be getting back to the harvest cycles of what you're doing. And we, and when we did an analysis on the PNAS, um, Proceedings of National Academies of Science, we said, what if you reduce, um, harvest by half of current levels on public lands? Mm-hmm. And what if you double harvest cycles backed up to 80 years? Now, 80 years, we just chose that because that's the lowest age that you start getting biodiversity coming back. Well, those two strategies contributed the most to being able to increase forest carbon by the year 2100, 2050, and 2100. Gotcha. The other ones we looked at were afforestation and reforestation. Afforestation is where you haven't had forest before. And technically, in IPCC words, it's, it can't have been a forest for the last 50 years. Reforestation, it was recently forest. And uh, so when we look compared those four um, management approaches, uh, the, the reduced harvest approach increased forest carbon by 10 times more than reforestation. And then Sorry, by two that? times higher. So it was Can 10 you say times that again? Higher. I think I missed that. Say that one more time. So we ran all the, those scenarios I was describing, yeah. and we compared the reforestation within current forest boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wherever we had areas that were current forest boundaries, we reforested. And it still didn't amount to much in mm. terms of carbon accumulation by the year 2050 and okay. 2100. And same with in terms of, of biomass, the total amount of carbon or the stocks. And, and it, again, it's, it's because it takes the young forest a while to get started. And we call it slow mm. in, fast out. Um, it takes quite a while to get back to where you were. If you harvest a 40-year-old stand, it's going to take 40 years to get back to where you were. Right. Absolutely. Hey, so Matt. 40 years. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. And I, I want to say this again, too. Actually, I didn't say this before we started. Everyone feel free to cut in if you have something to add. This is not, I don't mean for this to be like a, me questioning each of you individually. This is a, like a discussion, conversation, sure. dialogue. So jump on in. Feel free. This is. <laughs> sure. So. I mean, what I think what Bev is touching on, I'd step back and try to, you know, put on my forest manager uh, lens. The the reason this is important is one of the one of the philosophical arguments about public forests mm-hmm. has always been why aren't they managed more like private industrial lands? Oh, and I mean, this is one of the this is one of the pressures that national forest managers get is. Why don't you manage your lands more like we do, you know, from the private industrial sector? Huh. And, and, and so Bev is putting her finger on a very crucial thing that relates to values. Yes. If, if your value is economics, then that, that's a legitimate question. But if, you're, if your value really is the, the greatest good for the greatest number in the long run, and, and suddenly we have all this overwhelming science about climate change and the role of forests and particularly the role of old and mature forests mm-hmm. in sequest- sequestering and holding carbon is, is there not an obligation to try and make sure that that's an important decision variable? And, and given the stark contrast between the young forests, which typically are prevalent on private industrial lands, and the remaining older forests that are somewhat abundant in some places, but increasingly precious on public forests, 
this this then becomes a, a real fulcrum, you know, mm -hmm. for decision making. And it's only been in the last 20 years, I would argue, that the the issue of climate change and carbon has really landed with a big thump mm -hmm. on everybody's desk said, what are you doing about this? And I would say mm -hmm. as a former Forest Service employee, a retiree, I am embarrassed that the U.S. Forest Service has done so little mm -hmm. in response to this challenge. They, they have been absent at the table. Uh, it, and, no. and the United States has, has such an asset with their national forests and with the evidence that Bev has been providing about the crucial role that older mature forests play in carbon holding and sequestration. And, and well, sequestration, I mean, the, the amount that they pull in every year, mm. um, it just makes sense that we've, we've got to work out some kind of a new arrangement about yeah. the values that the, the uh, national forests are going to strive to achieve. Yeah. I, would, I love I that, would add to that, too. You know, Go ahead, Jim's, Jim's dead on and it. You know, the federal lands, generally speaking, because, you know, Bureau of Land Management also has forests with these high value, um, mature old growth trees area. And even we were hearing as the time we're recording this last Friday, President Biden coming out and starting to say that this this is an important action in the United States actually stands to be a position of leadership for the rest of the globe in trying to tackle the biodiversity and climate crises. Mm hmm. Absolutely. It was funny, Jim, when you, uh, when you said this is about values and everybody, including myself, we were nodding our heads up and down. We were just like, yeah, it is about values. And, uh, and, and yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Like I, to me, the carbon capture is, is one of these, a quote unquote new values that, that we're only just realizing. I mean, not just realizing in the context of, you know, the last 20 years kind of thing. Um, that this is something that needs to be managed for. And like you said, Jim, right? Uh, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, right? Like we're talking, even if, even if your only incentive in my perspective is economic, is your only incentive economic for you or for you and your kids and your kids, kids and your kids, kids, kids and your kids, 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 kids. Because if you're talking about economic incentive for the future generations, then you need sustainable forests to keep that industry going. And you only have sustainable forests if the public is on board and you're taking care of their values as well as the lumber, as well as all the economy, right? And no, I couldn't agree more. I, I totally agree. I think that timber production can only really, this is my perspective, can only really take place if you're taking care of all those other values as well. And I think that's at least uh, from the forestry folks that I know in Canada, that's most people's perspective, right? And there may be an argument about where that where that line is drawn, but um, no, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's interesting to me. So, sorry, go ahead, Jim. Well, I was going to say, so so you know, in my experience working in the Pacific Northwest during the 1990s, when when you had this uh, hyperinflated balloon, the the crisis of the northern spotted owls. In logging, and then the judge, the federal judge, came and stuck a needle in it and blew it up, and and everything settled in a completely different direction. We weren't we weren't talking about forced carbon at all. Right. I, I don't I don't remember one mention of forced carbon in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. But what we found, and I'm sure that Bev has even been involved in some of these studies, what we found was that the uh, the forests of the Pacific Northwest, some of the most abundant uh, carbon stores per acre in the world were huge emitters of carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, they were contributing to the problem until the spotted owl crisis 
stopped the the really massive logging of Pacific Northwest forests. And then it went into a long period of, of kind of quietude where there was still some harvesting going up, but it was vastly reduced from what it had been. And suddenly the Pacific Northwest forest began accumulating carbon, massive amounts. And so in the period of 25 years, it went from, you know, emitting large quantities of carbon to storing large quantities of carbon. And to me, this illustrates the role. Mm -hmm. It was serendipitous to a degree, uh, largely driven by a, a legal loss on the part of the Forest Service that, that required this huge policy uh, paradigm shift. But the, the benefit was uh, forced carbon. Um, and to me, it, it poses the question nationally, shouldn't the Forest Service be paying careful attention to that trend when they really began to re-examine how they were managing forests and move from the timber era to the ecosystem management era, mm. if we were to do that nationally and even globally, I think this is what the the uh, United Nations and others are calling for, mm. is a real re-examination of, of the way forests are managed mm. um, so that we are not only achieving, meeting our needs for wood products, but we're also uh, paying attention to the bottom line of carbon change or carbon storage globally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. So uh, you had mentioned earlier, um, what, what is, so Bev, you had mentioned earlier the like rotation age of like 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, like to me, that's like, I know uh, for, you know, like a, whatever, a pulp and paper perspective, that might be great because you can, but yeah, to me, a 40-year, that's not enough time for any kind of full forest cycle to take place, right? So that's not surprising to me that there's a biodiversity issue and that sort of thing. So what I'm, – I'm trying to figure out what, how, how much of that is going on, how much of the rotation age is only 40 years and how much of it is longer than that. I'm trying to understand this the, the picture again, kind of looking for more context again. Or maybe, Jim, you want to answer that. I don't know. Go ahead, Bev. Yeah, sure. Um, it's been, well, you know, I've, I think with the average that we've had was about 40 years. That's um, the average. Wow. Yeah. And so when I had, uh, and of course I'm from Florida I, and I was there during the multiple use. That's where I got my training in multiple use and intensive forest management. Um, so down there, the rotations are even shorter for poles versus saw timber, but in the Pacific Northwest is known for saw timber. So, mm -hmm. so when I moved to Oregon though, in the eighties, um, you could watch three logging trucks go by and each one has a different section of a tree on it. Um, and that means they were logging a lot of big trees back in the late eighties and, and yeah. a lot of trucks just passing through our little town. And, and so over the years that kept getting, um, shorter and shorter intervals. And I think it was economics maybe is the main reason, you know, accountant says we need a little more now to, to smooth out the bumps, mm -hmm. who knows, but, um, so it's changed to that. And that's what we're saying is, you know, I remember when it was back over a hundred. So mm -hmm. why can't we get back up there? It's, it's, um, and I don't, and again, I'm not saying that's that all industrial lands have to do that, but we also mm -hmm. have issues when you have a patchwork of industrial land next to sort of native forests mm -hmm. because they impacted the, the edges of the, of the, uh, of the native forest get impacted by that heat, those big heat events or extreme heat events, because the whole sides of the trees are taking on a heat load. 
So mm. that happened in an extreme event. So okay. those are things to think about when you're talking about managing and then how it plays out on the landscape. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah, I was trying to formulate this question in my mind, and I'm not sure if it's going to come out properly. But I was kind of, I kind of wanted to play devil's advocate for a second in regards to again the the whole forest picture because you're talking about how uh, so newly disturbed forests are a net carbon source for the first 10 to 20 years and then they start to accumulate more and more but throughout that time if there was an old forest there it would be accumulating significantly more carbon and i'm assuming it would take so if the old forest is 120 years old it'll take that long to absorb that much carbon again so it's it's really putting us into a a pretty big net loss as far as carbon storage is concerned um at least on the stand level but i'm trying to think about how like what are some of the arguments i'm trying to think about when you're talking about the whole forest and there are going to be fires, right? That they're inevitable and they're coming up more and more and more. How do we start to uh, think about that concept of, of I'm not making any sense at all. I apologize, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I was trying, I, I literally have been formulating this question in my head for like the last 10, 15 minutes and I couldn't quite get it. I thought maybe if I started talking, I could get it out, but it's not working. <laughs> but I guess my, my, my question is, my question is at the whole forest level, we know that disturbances are going to happen, right? And people will make arguments about fire and, and a certain amount of disturbance. So on a whole forest level, how do we? Hey, man, let me, let me guess. Let me guess where I think yeah, Jim, you might you be pick going. it up and uh, try and do something productive with it. <laughs> well, going back, going back to this fundamental question of, um, you know, how do you, how do you manage for these big issues like climate change? when and, and hold on to a lot of the carbon that forests are naturally gifted in creating and holding on to, and at the same time provide for some level of economic activity and meeting our needs for natural resources. Um, you know, you might know that I wrote a book called Toward a Natural Forest, a memoir kind of recounting my experiences dealing in fundamentally with this very question. And I think, you know, if you step back, and at least if you look at the United States, Prior to the incursion of white peoples into this mm-hmm. continent, I think you could characterize almost all the forest lands were generally mature and old growth in character, except where there had been some perturbations, you know, like fire or tornadoes or bug epidemics and that kind of thing. But the character of the American woodland was mature and old growth. And, and I would say my view is that the private industrial model is to convert most of that into capital and then begin to look at managing on short rotation ages and so on for maximum economic potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to me, the real challenge of the Forest Service would be to entertain a new model that really looks at restoring this character of mature and old growth forest as the the condition Mm -hmm. When you go to a national forest, this is what you see, mature and old growth forests that would allow for some selective removals of important economic timber. But clearly, one of the drivers would be carbon. Mm-hmm. And mature and old growth forests are champions at this. And, and once you attain this you know, print of mature and old growth conditions over most of the landscape, then you can selectively get some some timber removals and harvest to meet your economic needs. But uh, we're we're a long ways from that. 
Yeah. We, we had it. We lost it. I think we need to start working back toward it. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds to me like, um, again, I would adjust what you said a little bit, but I, th- I like how you said old growth uh, characteristics, right? Like that's the, that's the kind of the feel or the, the characteristics of that landscape, not necessarily the vegetation itself. Um, because, um, talking to a lot of indigenous folks, right? They talk a lot about how much they manage the land and they did manage it as a mosaic, right? They had everything from obviously young to old growth. And I, I know that, I know you weren't saying everything was old growth. You're saying there was the characteristics of it. And I think it sounds like after, after Western development that in the States, you sounds like you almost have, you have young forests and you have old forests and you have really not much in between, which is not the natural state of the forest and not a healthy state. Right. So is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there's, I think we've seen a real uh, bifurcation mm-hmm. of uh, management goals mm. on private lands. It remains generally a short rotation economic forestry mm-hmm. and um, and on national forest lands, they are striving for a much more well-rounded holistic environmental approach to manage for all resources now, including things like forest carbon, mm-hmm. um, all set against the backdrop of pervasive fire. Um, I'm not suggesting it's easy, mm-hmm. but I do think that public lands need to play a very different role Mm-hmm. Um, in in our society than what we see on private industrial lands. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 Jim, you know, to to follow that thought, um, like you talked about, I watched that uh, the documentary, uh, seeing the forest with with you in there, talking about the Sayusla National Forest. I said yeah. that right. Uh-huh. Yeah, on the Oregon coast. Yeah, and I found mm-hmm. it really fascinating because it was talking about that a lot, right? You were talking about um, kind of that disconnect. And you were talking at that time. You were you were the deputy chief at that point, no? Or was that just well? Before? I was a forest. I was a forest supervisor. Okay. In charge of the Sayusla National Forest, I, I became deputy chief after that. After that, okay, okay. Um, and in that documentary, um, you were talking a lot about the you know public disenfranchisement with the way forests are being managed, right? Um, and there was a gentleman in there. I'm not, I don't remember his name, but he he had he had passed this sentence talking about how it's important to um, important for you know the public license for there to be public license on the landscape and for people to be on board with it. And that over over decades and decades and decades, that public trust in forest management was going away. And only when the Forest Service had fallen. This is the kind of the, the quote from the from the documentary, but you had said only when the Forest Service had fallen so far out of public favor, when the disconnect between what the Forest Service was doing and what the public could accept became so vast, that's when the Forest Service realized what was going wrong. And at that point, it was too late, and politicians had to step in. And it almost seems yeah. like there's a bit of a there's a bit of a relationship here between that situation where management wasn't paying attention to what the public was asking of them and therefore politicians had to step in and what's going on federally in the US where all of a sudden now the Biden government is saying okay well it's time for us to step in and 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 fix this and stand up for what the people's values right um yeah so let's let, let's let's give credit where credit's due that statement is attributed to Andy Stahl okay he's the president of the Forest Service Employees for Environmental Ethics Gotcha. I'm sure Bev and Alex know of him, and other people would as well. Um, and I, one of my favorite statements is, if you don't take care of your business, 
somebody else will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think yeah. <laughs> this was the notion that, that the Forest Service had lost the ability to take care of their business. Um, they were found to be willfully violating wildlife laws, and, and a judge stepped in and, and crushed us, and we had to start over. Um, and I would say this, to me, if you look at a level playing field, for decades, the playing field on national forests had been tipped heavily in front of timber interests at the expense of environmental interests like the Sierra Club. Sure. And so this, a lot of the environmental groups had chafed for decades at being given the short end of the, the stick. Um, and so then a judge leveled the playing field and said, it's not big timber anymore. Um, you, you must pay attention to things like wildlife habitat, water quality, mm-hmm. fisheries. And so we did. We, we set out to change the management regimen on the Sayusla National Forest from timber production to restoration forestry. And I, and I will say, I mean, for me, it was incredibly gratifying because so many of our former critics applauded us and, and welcomed this transition and basically said, this is what we've been waiting for, yeah. a, a more fair, even-handed, balanced approach to managing public forests. And, and I just want to modify one thing Jim said, which was um, the environmental interests of people writ large. You know, I think there's started to be a general consciousness of folks who enjoyed these places for one reason or another, or had values on the forest that they felt were not being represented. And, you know, in some ways, um, getting involved and talking to the land management managing agencies around um, what that management should look like is, is a, a necessity. You know, it's, it's like voting in some, some cases there's, there's an obligation to be engaged in what that land management uh, is looking like on lands that are specifically for the public. Well, it's that public engagement piece, right? Like, yeah, like you, you need that public engagement piece to start to do that kind of value type management. You need to know what values exist on the land and what we want to do. Because if I was to speak, I know I've, I've spoken with some people in the past. I can't remember who I can quote this to, but they had said once that um, the forest industry has done what the public had asked of them for a long time, right? And now the public is asking something else and which is like totally, totally reasonable, right? And now they now it's time to start to address those changes and to and to flow with them and not stick to the old fight and do the old thing right it's time to it's time to evolve it's time to change um and that that's something that 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 came up in that documentary as well with Jim the seeing the forest thing right he said the the forest service was given a choice right you can fight the old fight till the end and just stand your ground uh you can give up and go home or you can find a new way and I like that finding a new way thing. It means we can go forward together. And and furthered in that documentary was the collaborative approach of all that, right? Where you brought in that public engagement piece. You brought in all of the stakeholders to the same table from industry to government to, to um, environmental groups to public recreation groups. And everyone was there. And they figured a way forward together where everyone could succeed. And I see that as the epitome, right? That's the way forward. That's the new way. And it was just – it was exciting to see that. Very, very cool. So, yeah. So in a way, in a way, um, <clears throat> President Biden has just kind of stepped in as a judge mm-hmm. and said, I'm I'm ruling uh, that we need a new a new paradigm. Um, and so this recent executive order last Friday mm-hmm. uh, that he announced in Seattle, he, he put 
forced carbon squarely on the table. Mm -hmm. And he acknowledged that mature and old growth forests are the place where we do best with forest carbon. And he he was signaling that we need a new federal policy that uh, accentuates and focuses on mature and old growth forests to address this issue. Um, And I mean, for me, uh, as a former Forest Service official, uh, I'm terribly excited about the next few months. I think they're going to be very dramatic in terms of, uh, you know, the battles between the old guard and the new guard and, and seeing how this battle is played out and, and who actually wins. I think the, I think the outcome is very uncertain. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. So what, what do you guys hope to – maybe Alex, maybe, maybe you want to speak to this. Um, what is being proposed? Like, what? Where do you guys see this going? What is? What do you? Maybe, well, let's let's put it this way. What do you hope is the outcome of this new initiative? You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is thinking about what Jim was getting at before, which is these these moments where there's been a shift in what it looks like for land management. And I think mm-hmm. the buildup of the discussion we've had so far is really about how do you start to account for the values of carbon in public lands generally, like they, the administration has been doing for 30 by 30. And now more specifically, you know, what does it look like to to create executive action that would start to direct um, mapping, cataloging, and conserving, I think to, to paraphrase the president, the mature and old growth forests on federally managed lands across the country. So I think that to what Jim had just said, it's, it's on the table. And I think that that's a that's a really big first step. And so now, to my mind, one of the, the critical pieces of that is is making sure that it continues rolling forward and that it continues rolling forward in a timeline that's going to work. Um, we know that forests can be a missing piece of the climate change, um, the, the things that we can do to be combating climate change. But mm-hmm. there's only so many years, decades left that we can be influencing that. And so I think that puts an even higher premium on these mature and old growth trees uh, that we're looking mm-hmm. at constant conserving. Mm-hmm. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, we're in a, it's, in, it's, very, it's a very unique and challenging situation to try to manage and try and yeah suss your way through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, Matt, you brought up before the reforestation, and I think it came up a little bit in the discussion around the IPCC reports. Um, and, and the proforestation piece of that just can't get lost in the mix. Um, just knowing that the the powerhouses of carbon storage and sequestration are are existing and standing and um, doing their jobs, keeping those in the ground is is step one. Right. Yeah. To make sure that we have what we have right now and we're not going more into deficit and then try to jump that up. So um, I did see, I did see, I think uh, the Biden government also said they were going to start planting a few billion trees, similar to what Canada's up to with our 2 billion tree initiative to try and, I guess that's for future, future stuff. Is that true? Did I read that right? You guys know about that? Uh, no? I think I, I think I saw something about that. I know that the Forest Service has struggled with what we call a backlog mm. of reforestation needs that's that's decades in the making, and I think this was uh, hopefully an investment to catch up, oh, you know, I see. by by doing more in the way of plant. Uh, excuse me, um, nurseries, you know, where they they actually create the planting stock. And then the investment of hiring people to actually get them in the ground 
Yeah. Um, but it's in, in a way, it's it's really uh, an effort to make up for what what has been a historic backlog. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was like 1.3 billion trees in the next 10 years or something. They wanted to. It was supposed to be afforestation. I think similar to the Canadian plan. Uh, I know we're trying to do two billion trees by 2030, with the intention of that being. Uh, an investment in our future carbon storage capacity, right? Sure. So, yeah. Well, so just, just, just bear in mind, mm-hmm. bear in mind the information that, that Bev Law was giving us about the, I mean, it's, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you hate to see forested lands barren, mm-hmm. but you just have to remember from a, from a carbon standpoint that those young seedlings are very puny uh, oh, yeah. in terms of their capacity to, to create carbon stores as compared to, you know what uh, Alex was talking about the the giants that you already have. You know, it's so much Absolutely. more effective to hold on to what you have. That's why I use the word investment, as it'll it'll yeah. pay dividends in in the future. Yeah, and not currently yeah. exactly uh-huh. at this moment, important time. Yeah, so go ahead, Ben. Uh, this why you know I named, uh, and maybe a couple of us came up with this on our own, but named it strategic forest reserves. Um, it was when I was reading about the strategic petroleum reserves and I thought, you know, the light went on. Oh, well, that's what we need for forests. It's what we need for climate change. There could be strategic marine reserves. There, All of these things that we're trying to do to deal with climate mitigation by storing carbon and climate adaptation by protecting ecosystems and the life within them. Absolutely. And it's it's funny how it's so difficult to – because people have these values on the landscape that are hard to quantify in a capitalist society, right? Like, and that's where we, that's ultimately where we're struggling here. We're hard, trying to put a dollar value on beauty and carbon capture and biodiversity. And it's, it's not, it's hard to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's funny that that's the, that's, that's always the point that we're getting to. I, I would love to see something. I don't know. I guess that's what a carbon tax is, right? I guess that's what that is, is putting a dollar value on yeah. it. Uh, yeah. And there are other things that can be done with, um, you know, a lot of what I've heard from interviews and people talking with people that have ownerships in the coast range. They're not all about cutting timber. They really want to protect their forests and the wildlife in them. And so it's trying to find incentives, conservation easements, tax deferrals, things that you can help them with because really it's paying the taxes on the land every year that's the hardest thing for them to do. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. So ultimately, um, if we're talking uh, – so we uh, something that we should define – is uh, we should actually def- I should have done this at the beginning. I didn't uh, mature and old growth. So in this in the sense of maintaining this mature and old growth, Bev, I'll let you take this one because um, you were talking. You have this knowledge in your brain right now. I'm sure uh, about exactly at what point it can be considered mature from a carbon capture standpoint and old growth. Well, we we do it from an analysis standpoint, and we've put the plots, sure. you know, of how much carbon is in each of the plots and plotted against age. Um, so it's the carbon stocks versus age, and you see where it starts to slow down in the rate of increase. So it's beyond 20 years okay. is mature, but it depends on some species and some areas that get there faster. And some are sure. sprinters, and some are in it for the long haul. And you know, Douglas fir is, you know, they, it just keeps increasing. <laughs> it's really surprising to see right. it. But yeah, it just keeps the stocks keep increasing and increasing at a good healthy rate so um so those are 
when you look at what's old, old is that complex structure. It has a few old trees. They're not always all old. Some places they might be because somebody managed it. Um, mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or some of the systems are just that way that they, they all grow up together. But in general, old growth is, has a complex structure to it. And, mm-hmm. um, and then it, like one of the things that we did was we looked at uh, 600,000 trees in the inventory data for the east, east side of, of Oregon, east of the Cascade Crest. And the, the top, the largest 3% of trees in that whole area, six national forests held 43 or 42% of the ecosystem carbon. Oh, so there, there are a lot of areas where you have uh, just a few big trees. Now we're not calling trees a forest, um, but some places mm-hmm. are like that now. And so you, you really want to be able to protect those because of how much they already hold in them and they've been holding for hundreds of years. So uh, I'm thinking about this again. I'm Canadian. I work in the boreal forest. That's my context. So I'm thinking about this from kind of a boreal perspective of where our our natural disturbance regime is uh, is fire, yeah. right? Fire is the mm-hmm. big one here. And I, I think I don't know the exact number, but I'll put one out there that I think I've I think I can paraphrase was uh, fire returns to the boreal forest every 80 to 120 years on average, right? So we so we I, I know we figured if we harvest at that rate, that's kind of following that trend, um, but I wanted to, so I wanted to, I wanted to put that on you. How do we start to um, talk about carbon in that context of, of something where you know that the natural regime is that it's going to burn in a hundred years? Well, you know, there's a huge standard deviation around that. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely, so, of course, of course, um, there is. That's why I said, average. yeah, and, and some of the things that happen, like in the lodgepole pine in the Colorado area, is that is that they were they all became very close in age, so that you, you had problems. Um, building and, you know, it, it was, it was better as a more mosaic perhaps. And that might be how those systems evolved as mosaics. And then when you also have mm-hmm. a mosaic with fire and like we have the mixed severity fire regime, it's low, medium and high severity. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's much easier for those systems to regenerate on their own because it's so patchy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. so, and, and I just mean, you know, there, there are areas that are all, along all these edges, the more edge that you had in after a fire, you have a lot of seed that falls in There's seed that some of them are, um, evolved to, to seed after fire, like lodgepole pine. So you treat mm. some of the systems differently like that, but, um, and that, and I'm talking about more of a landscape kind of perspective, but I think people do have to get their noses away from my forest and, and think about it at different scales. And then again, the, how much it matters to have high carbon density. I remember some people had mentioned, well, what about the dry systems? Well, there are areas within those dry regions that are like refugia and they don't necessarily need to be, um, cut or reduced, uh, reduced biomass. Um, so there, you know, it, it's, you do have to really think at, at different levels. And then uh, I also mm-hmm. always say as a carpenter, measure twice, cut once, um, really think about yeah. what's needed in a specific area. Yeah. No, hey, that totally makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Hey, Matt, I wanted to, I know that this might be too simplistic, but thinking about your previous discussion about mature and old growth, you know, there's, um, you know, that you can watch 
Well, let's take a human, for instance. You know, we have a life expectancy of 75 or 80, but a lot of times we're viewed as reaching maturity about 20. You know, that's where our body size kind of reaches its maximum. And then we age without really growing much. And we slip into, you know, uh, you know, aging uh, and, and dying, you know, and we kind of fall apart slowly yep. like I'm doing now. <laughs> um, but, but the, um, you know, the forests like the Douglas fir forests live to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. And yet I think what they call the accumulation of mean annual increment where, where a forest, where a tree starts growing rapidly and then it begins to plateau. And so the growth begins to table. Yes. Um, and that a lot of times that occurs around seventy-five or eighty years, even at a relatively young age. Yeah, that tree becomes mature. Yes, um, and yet, and then, and it's a completely different thing from carbon. Mm. I think that Bev is pointing out that these trees continue to grow over time in their capacity to store carbon. So, you know, how fast the tree is growing and how much carbon it sequesters are really two different questions. That's a but great. I think Point. A great point. Yes. But the, the issue is that I think a lot of trees reach maturity at a, at a relatively young age in terms of just when people think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that happens pretty fast. And so I think all across the United States, you know, something like 80 years is probably a pretty good rule of thumb sure. uh, in terms of when, when many species reach maturity as a, as a tree. Well, that opens up a good opportunity. And thank you, Jim. That was a perfect way of bringing this together. Um, and that opens up a great opportunity um, for Bev. I wanted to, to ask you about that because I think that's kind of some of the discussion going on with industry, right? Is that, oh, no, by by harvesting more, we're capturing that carbon and holding it for longer than it would in the fire where it would be released, right? And I know from the stuff that I've read regarding your research that that's not necessarily the case. So um, I want to give you the opportunity to maybe talk about that. Can you explain the difference between harvest thing and fire um, in, a, in a carbon perspective. Yeah. Um, so if whatever you remove, we track that. And this is going on at the international level. We've been doing it for 20 years. And um, in in tracking carbon from the – once you've harvested it, where does all that carbon go? Uh, some's left on yeah. the ground and some is used in mills for their energy. And uh, some is used for short-term products. And I would say most of it. Um, and then when you, when you get, it depends on areas like Sweden is different from us and some industries claim they have more going into saw timber than others. But, mm-hmm. um, but there are numbers on that and there are data available on that. And so what, what we found is that, you know, like w- over a hundred years of harvesting, um, that's equivalent to all the coast range forests, uh, um, for Oregon over a hundred years, about 60% of that carbon's back in the atmosphere that was harvested is back in the atmosphere. And 19% is in landfills and right around 16 to 18% is in the long-term products. Well, even when we did studies on, um, on, on removals in ponderosa pine to protect them from fire, um, 60% of that carbon was back in the atmosphere in 30 years. 
So mm. in other words, when, when there's harvesting, you're kind of starting the clock for, um, for all the decomposition and combustion that happens after that. Whereas, um, when the Forest Service did a study, and Jim's probably familiar with this, on the, on their treatments for, t- uh, to reduce fire risk or fire severity, um, only about 1% of the areas treated actually experienced fire. So it's hard to guess exactly when and where to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when, but when you've done all that harvesting, you've put it into this atmospheric uh, conveyor <laughs> of carbon. <laughs> sure, sure. That yeah, it was, a, it was an old, that reminds me of a roulette wheel. You know, when you yeah. bet on one particular number, what, what are the odds that that ball is going to land on your number? And I think, you know, that's, that's what Bev was bringing up is, you, you can do a lot of these land treatments, but you're basically betting that that fire is going to visit that landscape that you just managed to reduce fire risk. It, it's a very, it's a very low probability. Yeah. Which calls into question the wisdom of the investment. <clears throat> Interesting. So tying that into like the, what, what Jim had said about, um, the mean annual increment. So the, you know, where the growth starts to slow down in a tree versus um, the mean annual increment of carbon. I don't know if that's a good comparison, but you know what I mean. Um, how would you start to compare those two? So like if, if a forest management company understands the mean annual increment, but if the mean annual increment of carbon storage is further down the line, um, maybe that's maybe that's a different incentive, a different way of thinking about it. How, how much do you think that differs Bev. Well, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to ask you, but <laughs> yeah, I would just say mathematically half is carbon. <laughs> sure, 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 so, sure. So in that case, it would be equal. <laughs> but uh, but if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to decide, um, yeah, I'm always thinking more on federal lands about what they're doing okay. because that's something yep. that's that that we all have a stake in. And, and in federal lands, you know, I would go to the, you, know, you got to protect biodiversity, man. You got to protect the species. We're, we're having extinctions going on. We need to protect our water sources, our drinking water sources. So those two are big things. And carbon is with, along with that. That's for the climate mitigation. So you, you would, uh, you know, on the, I, I love Jim's idea of just letting the forest grow on national forests. Um, and the federal force in general, because they can reach their, that potential. You don't have to, you know, they, they, as the force get older, they have canopy gaps that might form and then younger trees come in and they develop that older structure. Um, sure. if you, so, so there are things that can happen like that, but if you can do that on federal lands, that's where we have the most power, most ability to combat climate change. And, you know, I think along those lines, we're, we're talking about the question of designating maturity. If you look at Northwest Forest Plan, which was one of the last large ecosystem level plans on the west slope of the Cascades, ranging from border of Canada on down into Northern California, um, covering multiple national forests and millions of acres, that we can look at that now, it passed in 1994, we're more than 25 years out, and, and look at the benefits that that has provided us. And it's it's carbon, it's clean drinking water for communities, it's biodiversity. But that, that um, maturity age was 
you could probably make the argument that around that the late successional reserves that were designated around 80 years is yes. probably the corollary for that. Yeah. And we could see, you know, that the, the benefits of that stand today and in a lot of ways, I think, show through in ways that we couldn't have imagined in 1994. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, quite a, an experiment of opportunity because it happened. And yeah, we were one of the ones, I guess, who went in there um, and did the, did the analysis. And over 17 years after it uh, got harvest on public lands was reduced by about 86%. Um, the carbon accumulation kept going up on that forest, those forests over that 17 years and was eight times higher than that of private lands. Some of their harvest was reduced too, but they were still hovering around carbon neutral, meaning they hadn't gained much. They just kept getting a little and losing a little over that time frame. Hmm. Yeah. I was, I, I was just thinking about, um, this concept of like like let, letting the forest grow and that sort of thing, and in this in the era of climate change where we know fires are so prevalent and they're only getting bigger and getting worse and all this sort of thing, how does how how do we make sense of the fire piece in here? Okay, so right? with fire. Um Again, it's just one size does not fit all. Um, there might be dry areas where you have, um, like, and I've worked so, so extensively in ponderosa pine and juniper over on that east side. Um, and when, so you might have fuel ladders that are young trees that are under the canopies of the big trees. And there are people who are being very careful mm -hmm. about just removing those so that they still maintain some canopy structure. Um, but it keeps the fuel ladders out or they'll do underburning of the shrubs if they've gotten too high and flame length could reach up onto the crown. But you know, those big trees, right. the crown's way up there. So, and they have super thick bark and they're good at dealing with this. So, um, right. so yeah, with wildfire, you, you might, you might end up treating some of those areas and they have been doing that, um, mm. and pretty broad scale, but I don't think it needs to be to the extent that, that people are going in some of it and some of the things that are happening. Um, and then, then you can, the, the refinery return interval in the older forest, the Douglas fir, that, that's, you know, a hundred to several hundred years. So, um, yeah. in watching that, those forests are still doing fine. You know, when we look at our maps and the vulnerability, it's just not there in those wet coastal rainforests. It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, no. in a relative sense, not vulnerable compared to so many other forests on, in the dry systems. So, so that's kind of yeah. where the management could go is when you're thinking, what can they do? But really the most important thing I see is that people start fires. You know, a lot of the fires are started yes, by us totally. operating machinery at the wrong time of the year in force. I even saw this when I was up in Glacier National Park, we saw a fire start and it was near um, a little commu community of just a couple houses. And then it took that whole side uh, while we were there, uh, mountainside. So it, we have to learn to be much more careful about not starting them when it's really 
um, high fire risk, a high chance the weather is you know, windy and dry and it's been dry for a long time. Um, so at the other is that we've got to protect communities and, and I would say start from the inside out. So we need to make sure that and we're doing this. I'm telling everybody in these areas that, you know, you can do your part by changing the materials on the exterior of your house and changing the venting that, you know, the guy in Canada, Cohen had done some nice experiments and showed how the flames were getting into the houses through the vents you know, the, under the eaves. So there are things like that that can, can be done to help communities harden their homes um, and then make sure that they, they just don't operate machinery don't, during those time frames. Likewise with the Forest Service, we have a research natural area and there are a lot of ATVs that go in there in summer. Well, they might need to bite the bullet and just close the gates when it's that severe, you know, when it's that risky. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We've had some we've had some quad or quad ATV, some ATV closures in the province last year, I think for was it last year, maybe a couple of years ago. But yeah, they, they stopped. You weren't allowed to drive an ATV in the bush for like it was like two or three mm-hmm. weeks. Like it was going to be a fine. Right. And yeah, it was necessary because we had those those wildfires just coming in only because of, you know, starting a fire from the heat of a muffler yeah. of an ATV or something like that. So no, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm all for that. If that's what it takes to protect the forest, then why not? Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, you know, Matt, if you, if you look historically, there's some interesting things mm-hmm. that generally out of all the fire ignitions that start, uh, about 98% of them are controlled at very small sizes, but about 2% of the fire ignitions mm-hmm. are the ones that do all the, the great damage. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. that's been true for a long time. And, um, and yeah. we see now that, um, in spite of how many people are employed and, and the amount of money that the Forest Service spends on budgeting for fire and fire suppression, the, the, um, the acres burned have been, have been climbing and, and the damage done has been climbing. I also heard an interesting statistic that about 40% of the acres burned today are generally the result of backfires that are set by firefighting personnel to con- try to control the bigger fire from getting bigger. Um, that go awry. So yeah. there, there yeah. is that. But, you know, Bev mentioned the home ignition zone is that what we're, what we're really seeing, the most painful aspect of what we're dealing with with fires right now is, is the loss of homes and the loss of life. And what was the term you used, uh, Bev, was, you know, building – uh, fire suppression from the inside out, yeah. you know, that the the great opportunity is really investing in our communities to try and protect them from the fire risk. And I've, I've wondered, you know, the, the Forest Service is going to be throwing billions of dollars at, at this fire issue. And I've wondered, what are they going to accomplish in 10 years trying to manage the tree aspect of fires? What would, what would be happening if they spent that money for the next 10 years on, on managing the structure, uh, landscape, you know, helping communities uh, get ready for fire preparedness and all that kind of thing. It, to me, it's just, I, I just feel like we're ready for a completely different look at how we manage this whole mm-hmm. complex of, um, fire communities in forested environments and that type of thing. It just, it's just screaming for a completely different approach. Yeah. Yeah. 
Alex, you wanted to say something there? Yeah, Jim, you know, steal your thunder. <laughs> <laughs> he said it very eloquently. I think that the that's your opportunity for investment right there. Um, working from the community out, working on home hardening mm. pieces, and ensuring that folks are safe. I think we're already seeing the worsening impacts and climate change making these fires um, far more concerning. And so the the urgency is there. Absolutely. And I would be remiss. I know I would get, I would catch hell from uh, Amy Christensen if I didn't mention the need for more good fire as well, right? A need for more prescribed fire, more cultural burning, more of that to try and, and stop this as well. I know Amy would, would be pissed at me if I didn't at least bring it up once. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wanted to mention too while we're talking about this, you know, generally, Matt, when you see all these statistics, like a million acres burned, um, it's worth noting that they don't all burn the same, that there's also kind of a rule of thumb that generally out of that million acres burned, probably 15 to 20 percent is burned modestly or lightly, much as a lot of the indigenous mm. peoples would burn their native homelands mm. recurrently. And then you probably have another, you know, 40 to 45 percent that's burned at, at a moderate intensity that actually recovers quite rapidly from the fire. And then you have a component of severe burns, you know, where there can be some, some real damage done. But the point that Bev brought up about we're not losing the carbon. You know, when these, far, when these forests burn, we're not losing the carbon. Most of what you see in the air is water vapor. And, and what did you say, Bev, sometimes that uh, only two to three percent of the yeah. carbon is lost into the atmosphere? The, the yeah. vast majority stays in place in the in the wood um, and will remain so for hundreds of years. And then the forest yeah. recovers and it starts sequestering carbon again. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because that's kind of the misnomer, right? I think people assume that like, oh, the fire is the worst thing for carbon sourcing. Um, I have a theory but, for that. Bev, you're saying <laughs> – Go ahead. Okay. What it's, is it? It's what appears <laughs> in the press. Um, you know, you have a natural tendency to maybe show the worst of it. And, and that's all that people see. Um, and Jim is right. You know, we did an analysis over a lot of the Western U.S. And it was um, really a large portion of it is just these light litter, you know, that just goes over the surface, surface fires. And that's really yep. what you want to see. Um and and then and there's maybe a moderate amount, and then the lower percentage in the in the mixed severity regime that we're still in is around. It, it ranges between ten and twenty percent. Uh, the California ones, where somebody he'd used a lot of our coefficients, we we went out and measured this stuff for big trees of the Northwest in our kind of forests, and and the, they determined some of those California fires that yeah, only about one and a half to two percent of the the tree above ground tree mass burned. So it combusted. And so, you know, not only that, they, they still have cones there that are, they're functional. So, you know, let them leave them there so that they can have some natural regeneration. Interesting. Cause yeah, I think the, the, the thought for most people was that, yeah, fire comes through, it burns up all the small matter, all the branches, all that. That's immediate carbon into the atmosphere. And then the log falls over, slowly decays and releases all of that carbon. Mm-hmm. And the thought is that all of the carbon from the tree, not including the root system and the carbon, which, which you know is like mostly stored in the, in the soil, not including the soil carbon, but all of the vegetation carbon is released because of a fire. But, it sounds like from your your research, that's not exactly that's not exactly what's going on. Which is really, really that changes the way we think about things for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, 
Very interesting. So I guess I was, I was trying to figure out how to, how to end this because I don't, (laughs) we've covered a lot of ground. And usually I have like a, a nice fancy way of like tying things in a little bit of a knot and being like, so these are the takeaways from this. But it seems like the takeaways are, are, are kind of that we need more mature and old growth forests on the land for now to continue. Or not just for now. We need them on the land to continue to, store, to sequester carbon as time goes on um, and try and play catch up with the rest of the forest and try to try to understand how we can get back to a place where it is more sustainable from from an all-inclusive value perspective and in the meantime fireproof your homes and fireproof the nearby communities and and that kind of thing and and just yeah hope we can reduce that risk (laughs) it's a weird one to try and tie together but it's a lot well i would say i think you touched on some good points there matt i think the key thing that that i think what president biden was saying is we need to figure out a way to hold on to the mature and old growth force that we have and grow more. Um, secondly, right. as it relates to the whole forest fire issue and, and how that conflates with forest management, that kind of thing, is the the best investments are probably in community hardening, you know, trying to invest directly in communities uh, and, and work from the inside out rather than trying to protect mm-hmm. all the hundreds of millions of acres, you know, surrounding the communities. Um, and then I think mm-hmm. To the the convergence of values, um, when you work with forest carbon and old growth forest, all the uh, things that come with it, you know, more pure water, yeah. better wildlife habitat, better scenery, more biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, these, I think, are the long term values that serve the American public best in the long run. Absolutely, no, I agree. That makes sense. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate someone taking <laughs> the reins on this and making sense of it all because I have been struggling today. <laughs> Well, I'll blame it on it being the American context, and I have no understanding. That's so. Bev She she will take your mind and work it like an egg beater. With some of her, she Thanks, confounds. She confounds common sense. Yeah. That's hilarious. Oh well, uh, I don't know. Does anybody have anything they they want to finish with? They, they think they want to maybe a final. Final thought, maybe something that came up during the conversation that they want to share before we call it a wrap. Um, I guess it's okay if you don't. There's too. just <laughs> one that, that I thought was really um, and um, made us thrilled was IPCC report that came out and working group one and two. One is physical science basis. Two um, covered the uh, impacts and then there's mitigation adaptation. But they finally recognized and that we need to the biodiversity of of animals, of genetic diversity, all, it's all intertwined. Biodiversity and climate change is intertwined. And if you do anything to address one, you need to think about the other at the same time and deal with them simultaneously. Um, and they even stated in the, in the reports, you know, it's a fairly conservative report. It's written for policymakers. They all have to agree on it, but they all agreed that maintaining the resilience of biodiversity and ecosystem services depends on effective conservation of about 30 to 50% of Earth's land, freshwater and ocean areas, including currently near natural ecosystems. So 
so we're thinking, okay, now they've, they've got it. You know, you can't, you can't just treat one thing separately. This was really good news. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I think that's something we've been struggling with in Alberta too, where we're starting to realize that we can't manage everything individually, yeah. right? We need that collaborative, all-inclusive, big picture approach if we want to succeed. Because otherwise, we're just going to be running into each other and creating more problems than we can possibly solve in a day. So it's, yeah, I think I think we're all kind of coming to this realization at the same time when it comes to uh, land management, which is which is interesting. It's taken us so long, <laughs> but I'm glad it's happening. <laughs> yeah, it's an opportunity. Before I before I yeah. give Alex the last word, because I think he deserves it. This was kind of his idea to get this conversation I know, Alex, together. Um, I didn't really give you much to talk about, did I? <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, Alex. <laughs> hold, hold on a second. You know, I I worked for over 35 years with the Forest Service. I retired 25 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, and I, I've been a little dismayed about how the Forest Service has been asleep at the wheel on this forest carbon issue. And I, I guess I would just say it's time to wake up and smell the carbon. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. I like it. Excellent. Nice quip. How long did it take you to write that one, Jim? I just thought of it about a minute ago. Hey, what's a, oh, you're quick. You're quick. I'm not that quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll paraphrase Jim paraphrasing um, Gifford Pinchot, but I think, you know, the, back to that quote of working for the greatest good for the greatest number in the longest run and thinking about how mm. that looks for forest service management. If we are looking multiple generations ahead and thinking about what do you do now to ensure that for the long haul, um, that's that carbon is really the answer to that piece. And so I think... Back to the what you'd said, Matt. There's an opportunity for collaboration and and pushing something forward here. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Exciting times. Absolutely, and I think it's. I don't mean to steal your thunder as a last word, but I just wanted to add to what you were saying. Um, I think it's it's important that everybody comes to the table with an open mind, and everybody comes to the table because I think, well, especially for industry, right? There's a tendency to come here feeling blamed and have the finger pointed at them, right? And I think if if we're going to succeed here, everyone needs to come together and, and with an open mind and try to try to collaborate in a real way like they did in the I'm going to screw it up again, the Siusla Siusla National yeah. Forest, right? Sai. Siusla, sorry about that. <laughs> Siusla, Sai. Yes, okay, perfect. Now I know. Now you tell me. Why did you say that before we started recording? <laughs> but uh but yeah, I think it's it's all about the, the the headspace, right? The headspace of folks coming into this, and we have to go into it and kind of maybe put the past in the past and go, okay, this is a new leaf. How do we do this now? This is the situation we're in. How can we manage this the best way for all values? Period. Right? And I think I think it's an exciting opportunity, and I think uh, now is the first time in human history where we've been able to maybe pull that off. Right. With the onset of the internet and, and communication as much as it is. Right. So, um, yeah, that's a conversation we're having in Canada as well. So, uh, with that, thank you, everybody. Um, this was, thank you. Yeah. This was, uh, really, really great. I, I'm glad I was able to stick handle it fr- from some kind of way. I kind of made a mess of it a little bit in the middle, but I appreciate your patience and I appreciate Jim, you especially coming to my rescue a couple times there. That was great. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's very important to have uh, – again, we're collaborative effort here, right? We're trying to do this together. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I want to say thank you to all three of you and very especially to Alex and to uh, Maithany for organizing this from the Sierra Club. This is all you guys. This is your brain baby here at this point. Um, thank you very much for, for providing uh, these contacts with Jim and Bev and yourself. And uh, I look forward to keeping in contact and seeing where things go. And uh, there's always opportunity to to talk again. I'm here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I know uh, that made my head spin. There's a lot going on there. But I, I definitely learned a bunch. And I really, really appreciate everybody that was a part of this. Thank you, to if you were involved. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was great for me. So, uh, yeah, more of that. More of that coming on. Lots more conversations to be had. Uh, I release an episode every three weeks. And if uh, you can get out there and maybe, you know, if you want to help out, the best thing you can do is rate and review and share it. So it turns out Spotify don't really have any reviews, weirdly. So throw a bunch in there. I got lots on Apple, but not a lot on Spotify. So if you're on Spotify, please just go and hit the five-star button. Maybe say this podcast dope or whatever you want to say. I don't know if you talk like that, but uh, yeah, anything's appreciated. And uh, yeah, just share it on social media, that kind of thing. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, It really helps me out. And yeah, that's it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care.